Now then, I'd like you to listen to a couple of sounds. It was a complete creation of his own making. I was the very, very first in the whole world. I've got plenty of other people. I've got uh, four sisters and two brothers. They've all got plenty of kids. I've got plenty of kids on Jim Picture. So my kids, uh, to me anyway, the best sorts of kids is they all go home to their parents. Me to do things for him. He wanted me to fondle him. He asked me for oral sex. We gave him every instrument that he needed in Brooklyn on some extremely damaged individuals. Sir James Savile OBE, the man who has single-handedly raised more than 30 million pounds for charity. Why have you said in interviews that you don't have emotions? Because it's easier. The truth is I'm very good at masking them. I'm a rare breed insofar as I'm a single fella. Uh, and which is why when people say, there are five places you've got to live in. Aren't they expensive? I said, not as expensive as a wife. Now, the Metropolitan Police say that it will now take the lead in investigating sex abuse allegations against the late Sir Jimmy Savile as more women come forward claiming to have been assaulted by the television presenter. Who's your best pal, Tony? Oh, look, No, Desmond. He's not. He is. No, he's not. Get off me. Because he's a married man. Okay. Yes, you do. Oh. Well, no, <laughs> not until you say me. Now, me, when I stand in front of the table and St. Peter's there, he says, you are not coming in. Uh, and I'll say, well, why not? And he'll say, because you're a villain. And, and he'll show me the debit side. And I'll say, hang about. And I'll show him the credit side. And he does that mean anything? And if he says that means nothing, then I'll threaten to break his fingers. What does she do with the cable, boys? <laughs> and I didn't want to. And he promised me that if I gave him oral sex, that he would arrange for me and my friends to go to Television Central and be on his television show. Hey, hey, hey! We've got it all happening tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody's around. We're going to start with our guests. I hope it's been a very good week for you, and here's a very good set of fix-its for you. Here we go now with a letter from Leeds. Yeah, Leeds. Me? So, I promise. I promise. That you... Jimmy Savile. You, Jimmy Savile. Are the only one. Are the only one. In my life. I was 14. Of course I wanted to go to television centre. I didn't want to give him more facts. I thought it was disgusting, but I did that. Okay. Gary Glitter was one example. He was particularly horrible and only interested in getting as much sex as he could possibly get from any girl. I'd start with manipulative, then controlling, and very, very clever. It has become a great British institution. Not bad for just another zany DJ. But there's a lot more to cigar-smoking Jimmy than meets the eye. I can remember seeing him having sex with one of the girls from Dunkroft in Jimmy Saddle's dressing room. I was the very, very first in the whole world to run a dance to record. You used to be a wrestler, didn't you? Right, I need a lamp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm feared in every girls' school in this country. This is the Death Cast, and this is the story of Sir Jimmy Seville, OBE. Hello, and welcome to the Death Cast. I am your host, best-selling author, Ian Totten, and as always, I'd like to thank you for joining me as 
this week we prepare to look at a case that is quite different from any other that we have looked at up to this point. That is the case of Sir Jimmy Seville OBE. Why is this case different from others, you may be asking? Well, Jimmy Seville was never convicted of anything during his lifetime, nor did he commit any known murders. You'll understand what I'm getting into shortly, but before we dive into Jimmy Seville, I have my normal plugs. If you'd like to follow me on social media, that would be Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. You can find me under Ian Totten Author or under The Deathcast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, just look for CorpseCreekPublishing.com. If you are interested in reading any of the six novels that I have released, you can find them on Amazon. Just search for Ian Totten. The latest release is Maggie. If you would be interested in signing up for my mailing list, you can go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. Click on the sign up button while there. Please consider making a donation to the show by clicking on the donate button if you like what I do. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of cigarettes. If you enjoy this show, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. They really help with getting the show before more people. If you don't enjoy the show, that's fine. Just keep that to yourself because nobody cares. As I've been doing for the last few weeks, if you are an animal lover or just want to do something for a good cause, go to PayPal and look for Day One Animal Rescue. Click on the donate button there or you can find the information in the show notes again day one animal rescue is an animal rescue that was started by a young woman who passed away unexpectedly in february people are trying to keep her vision alive and as such i have taken it upon myself to include their information with each episode in an effort to try and raise awareness to this organization. Alright, now that all the plugs are out of the way, find yourself a comfy place to sit, get yourself a drink, close your eyes, be prepared, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. Before we really dive into the story of Sir Jimmy Seville OBE, I want to give a warning beforehand. As stated in the show opening, this case is much different from any that I have covered in the past. In fact, I may be the only true crime podcast who is attempting to cover Jimmy Seville. And there is a reason for that. I have spent the last nine years researching Jimmy Seville. And by researching, I mean if it's been written about him, be it an article, an official government report, an internal gov- or internal 
report from a corporation, anything that has come out on Jenny, Jimmy Seville that is available for people to read. I have it. I've read it. I've researched this man and his life more extensively than anything I have ever researched. Much like the Atlanta child murders, Jimmy Seville is my white whale, as it were. There's something about this case and the man at the heart of it that I find absolutely fascinating. And as such, because of the things we're going to be talking about during this week's episode, I want you, if you are easily offended, if you are squeamish, if talks of child sexual abuse is something that you might not be able to handle, turn the episode off, go listen to another show like True Crime Garage, they don't dive into stuff like this uh, because that is at the heart of the matter with the Jimmy Seville case as I said I've been researching Jimmy Seville for at least nine years and I went into researching him with a very open mind because the allegations against him the breadth and depth of these allegations was so mind-boggling to me. For those of you who are not aware of the allegations, it was alleged after Jimmy Seville died in 2011 that he had been a serial pedophile of both boys and girls for the better part of 60 years. And you will repeatedly hear me refer to the fact that it's alleged that he did these things because other than people coming forward there has been no physical concrete evidence to prove any of these things and unfortunately Seville is no longer with us to be questioned at length to get to the heart of the matter not that I believed he would have admitted to it were he still alive but we are getting ahead of ourselves. Most people in the United States do not know who Jimmy Seville was. The best way I can put it, person I can liken him to the most, would be Dick Clark. If Dick Clark became as popular as Jesus and was known in every household throughout the country. Some people may think that that is an exaggeration. Believe me when I tell you it is not. Jimmy Seville released autobiographies, a book on his own religious views, various types of merchandise. He was on dozens of television shows. He had his own radio programs. He was knighted by the Pope. He was given Order of the British Empire in the 1970s. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. So, to compare him to 
Dick Clark with the popularity of Jesus is not a stretch in any way, shape, or form. This guy was as part of British culture as the Beatles were. But unlike the Beatles where damn near every facet of their life is known, much of what we know about Jimmy Seville came directly from the man's lips. He was a very secretive individual who liked to do a lot of double speak and would ramble on incessantly about various aspects of his story only to switch tactics right in the middle of a train of thought and move on to something else that was completely unrelated to what he had just been talking about. So it was it's very hard to nail down things in his life with any degree of certainty unless it's something that is a matter of public record. So who was Jimmy Seville? James Wilson Vincent Seville was born October 31st, 1926. The youngest of seven children born to Vincent Joseph Marie Seville and Agnes Monica Kelly. Jimmy was born at Consort Terrace in the Burley area of Leeds. According to Seville, he was a very sickly child when he was born, and in fact almost didn't make it out of early childhood. According to Seville, he was so sickly that at age two, he was basically on his deathbed with a priest coming and reading him his last rites. At which point, his mother went over to the Leeds Cathedral and prayed to Margaret Sinclair, who Margaret Sinclair was a Scottish nun believed to have sway over sick children. As a consequence of this, supposedly Seville pulled through, but as he grew up, he was forced to wear braces on his legs. And the Seville family lived in a fairly large house. And as the story goes, there was a home for the infirm across the road from the family's home that Seville's parents both routinely volunteered at, and in later life, Seville would state that it was from this that he got his own sense of purpose in life, and that is as a man who would help those in need. Seville stated that he spent many, many hours of his early childhood over at this uh, old folks home helping his parents and listening to the stories that the individuals who lived there had to tell him. Whether or not this is true with as with so much of Seville's story is left to speculation. There is also some speculation that 
the crimes for which Jimmy Seville would later be accused after he passed may have had their root in this in home for the infirm as it's very likely that one or more of the individuals who called this place home may have taken an unhealthy interest in the young child and begun either grooming or just flat out abusing him while he was on the property. Seville's mother, who would go on to become part of his mythos, was a fairly overbearing woman from everything that I have read. She pretty much kept Jimmy at her side at all times and looked on him as the chosen one. Now, there is no way to confirm or deny this particular aspect beyond that when his mother gave interviews while she was alive, she pretty much painted a picture of a young man who was her favorite and who was looked upon favorably by God himself. Seville's own siblings have gone on to recount that he was basically the baby of a family who could do no wrong in his mother's eyes. Seville's father, Vincent, was a chronically out-of-work individual who, when he did work, is said to have worked in the black market as a numbers runner, a bookkeeper for organized crime, as well as an accountant. At some point during his youth, Seville was able to get out of the leg braces that he was wearing, and he ended up going to a Roman Catholic school, which he left at the age of 14. It is known that he was something of a street urchin, one of those individuals who constantly ran the streets and was looking for an angle to not only make money, but get over on other people. Seville himself stated that he and his father were involved in the black market scrapyarding business for a period of time. According to Seville, and I want to preface this particular part with that, when World War II broke out, he, he was conscripted to work as a Bevan boy in the mines. I prefaced that for the simple reason that other individuals who worked in the mines that Seville claimed to have worked in later went on the record and stated they don't ever remember seeing him there or having interactions with him. Seville stated that he ended up working in the worst part of the mines, which is an area where the various tracks converged, and he would sit there with a lantern and his job was basically to make sure that the mine cars got onto the right tracks as they came from the surface and went further down into the mines, as well as when they were sent up from the mines to be sent back to the surface loaded with coal. 
and a story he liked to recount was that by this point in his life, he had discovered the various dance halls and arcades around Leeds. And he would go out to these dance halls at night and then show up in the morning in a completely white suit, at which point he would go down into the mines, stripping off all of his clothing and placing his suit inside of a bag of some type and going into work, and then when his shift was over, before coming back to the surface, he would put the suit back on and go to the surface, and this freaked people out because everyone there obviously was covered from head to toe in coal dust, whereas Seville was immaculate, and he later stated to the journalist Dan Davies that basically he didn't do this for any other reason than for something to do and to have some fun, but he realized in the reactions that he was getting from these coal miners that there was something to, to, to what he was doing. There was something to being a little bit odd and a little bit different from everyone else. And in his mind, he began searching for a way to turn this oddness into a financial situation. After the war ended, Seville continued working in the coal mines and at some point while he was working in the coal mines, so the story goes, he was sent into a shaft to plant charges or something along those lines. And when they called for the all clear note, he didn't hear them. So therefore, he was still inside of this shaft when they set off the detonators and the entire side of this mountain underground came down on top of Jimmy Seville. Apparently, people realized he was in there. They got him out. He suffered severe spinal injuries. And as a result of this, he basically went on what we would consider today as workman's comp, where he was forced to wear a back brace as well as plaster casts that went from the small of his back all the way down his legs. The interesting part here is that there is no record of this having happened. Interesting because the one bit of information regarding Jimmy Seville during this period of time sent, dates that he was sent home from the coal mines after a x-ray revealed that he had developed a chest cold, although his family did back up his claims to having been grievously injured in the mines. According to Seville, it was while he was convalescing back at home that he threw himself back into getting in shape. That means riding his bicycle and eventually running. This was in the late 40s, early 1950s, and it's interesting to note that the only bit of record for anyone bearing a resemblance was a man by the name of James Wilson, who ended up dying at the age of 22, and there is some speculation that Jimmy Seville may have 
for a period of time taken on his deceased cousin's name in order to avoid actually going into the mines. When I say that there's speculation about this, there's some commentators that believe that his tales of working in the mines are complete rubbish from start to finish, and that he took on the persona of James Wilson, his cousin, who had recently perished, and thus avoided working in the mines altogether, instead focusing on his black market activities. One small aspect of Seville's persona that I do want to touch on before I forget to mention it is his love of cigars. Jimmy Seville was one of those individuals where you never saw him in public without a large cigar clamped between his teeth. This was something that he had stated he had picked up around the age of seven growing up in Leeds and that he had carried with him into adulthood. Whether this is true or not is unknown, but the reality is any pictures you find from Jimmy Seville, be it from the 40s, 50s, or onward, he always has a cigar clamped in his teeth. And I throw that out there to posit that if that particular aspect is true, there may be other aspects of his early life that are likewise true. And it might be lies sprinkled with bits of truth here and there. Back to his story about being injured again, his family have confirmed that this actually did happen. And according to Seville, he was giving a pretty serious prognosis from the doctors in that he would never be able to walk again without the aid of walking sticks. And because of this, he developed a determination to prove them wrong which we will get to in just a moment when we come back. For me and Tot, they're selling armor from the House of Silver Doors, the Blood Gotch Trilogy, and the throwaway girls Olympia. Comes Maggie. Book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers, quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie, Carl felt by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, 
and the hell that she had endured. Maggie, hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. You have been We are back, and according to Jimmy Seville, as he's convalescing in this room in his parents' home with the injured back and legs, he discovered American music via a radio station that was being piped in from the servicemen who were in the area. And he also took to posting pictures of Rolls Royces up around his room because he saw that that was what he wanted to be in, in life. He wanted to be successful enough in order that he should be able to afford one of these vehicles. Again, according to Seville, he's struggling with these injuries and he's becoming an old man. And one day he's walking down the road and he sees an image of an old man walking on crutches chasing him and it was at that point that he realized that the old man was him and he became t d determined to really prove the doctors wrong was that also at this period of time that Seville's father started to fall out of the picture. Seville, who would later speak of his father as an individual he pretty much hated, stated that he had sent his father on a trip abroad for a period of time, although this can neither be confirmed or denied, so that he could take his mother as his own what that implies, I have no idea, although it, it should be noted that he and his mother had a very, very close relationship. I'm not saying it was a sexual relationship. She does not seem like the type of individual who would have put up for that type of thing. But Jimmy Seville, pretty much at this period of time, stepped into his mother's life as her sole provider and caretaker. Again, this is important because Seville was a very calculating, manipulative individual, and this really shows how he manipulated those around him in order to get what he wanted. He was the youngest of seven children. He never really got the attention he craved from his mother by his own admission. So in adulthood, he put himself into a position where his mother would have no choice but to rely on him. And he could therefore get all of that love and attention that he desired from her. At this point in time, Seville was also working as a scrap meddler stating that he was making 60 quid or bob a week 
uh, which was a small fortune at this period of time, and that this came to an end when his partner was suddenly killed in, in or around 1953. We do know is that Seville's father died from cancer in 1953, so it's not much of a stretch to assume that his partner in this illicit business was none other than Vincent Seville himself, and that when his father, with all of his various connections, passed away, Seville was left to look for a different means of income. Coupled with all of this going on, Seville began to move past the injuries he had sustained in the mines and became something of a local celebrity for his prowess on the bike. This is an important aspect of Jimmy Seville, as we will see later while we delve into him. But he was a very athletic individual, so much so that he... The a athletics as well as what is about to come in his life are what led him to fame. At some point during this period of time, again we're talking the late 1940s and early 1950s, again it's difficult to pin anything down in Seville's life unless there is a public record which will come later as he begins to become more famous. His mother, who was a frequenter of the local Mecca dance hall, heard from a friend of hers that a local boy in the neighborhood had developed a device that allowed for two records to be played, uh, you know, back to back. Basically, a DJ's turntable booth. At this period of time, it was a novelty. If Seville and one of his friends rented out the upstairs of a dance hall and threw a free dance using this individual's dual turntable along with a microphone. Again, this was something that was a novelty unheard of in this period of time. And according to Jimmy Seville, he was the very first DJ to ever use a dual turntable microphone setup at a dance what this allowed him to do was to have one record on standby while one was playing, as well as be able to intersperse the music with his own patter. On the night that he and his friend did this particular dance, the contraption that the local boy had come up with pretty much melted down and Although it was somewhat of a success, he later said of it that, you know, they should have known better what they were doing before going into it. However, he walked away from this night with this to say, and this is coming from Dan Davies' amazing book, In Plain Sight, The Life and Lies of Jimmy Seville. Even then, as I stood there and played the records, I felt this amazing... Power is the wrong word for it. Control is the wrong word. Effect could be nearer. What I was doing was causing 12 people to do something. I thought I can make them dance quick, I can make them dance slow, or I can make them stop. That one person, me, was doing something to all these people, and that's really the thing that triggered me off and sustained me for the rest of my days. 
you can lead, read a lot into what Seville is saying there. According to Davies, he's talking about the control that he realized he could gain over other people. Some people may think that he's talking about the power that music has over people. Myself, I believe that in that little snippet, Seville was really just bragging about the fact that he had discovered he had something of a magnetic personality and could very easily get other people to do as he wished, therefore he could control them. Why would an individual want this? Well, it's very likely that inside Seville suffered from an extreme inferiority complex and felt that he was not in control of his own life. At any rate, at some point, Seville and another one of his friends began trying to turn these, what they termed, disc parties into a business, and eventually they were asked to host a 21st birthday party, which Seville stated started out badly, but as the night progressed, got even better. This is another part of his story as so much as that it's hard to nail down dates to because at some points he stated this took place in 1943 or 44 when he was 17 or 18 and other points he stated this took place in 1951. In 1951, Seville was part of the inaugural Tour of Britain bicycle race, except he was not racing as Jimmy Seville, he was racing as Oscar the Duke Seville. This is one of the first things in his life beyond his birth that we can verify completely. In fact, if you do a quick online search of the Tour of Britain, you will find Oscar the Duke Seville in the roster of those individuals who rode during the race. Seville, while he was a competitive bike rider and was described as quite good at it, saw the opportunity that being in these marathon races presented to him. He would show up wearing a full tuxedo and, you know, preening and dancing to the crowds, and while the other racers were preparing themselves and stretching, he would have someone arrive bearing a silver tray with a brush for his hair and a cup of tea. Really, what he was doing was working the crowd much in the same way a professional wrestler or a carnival worker does. It didn't matter what where he placed in the race. What mattered to Seville was that he was able to get all eyes in the crowd on him, thus negating the other racers. Seville really starts to come into his own during the Tour of Britain. Apparently he did fairly rough the first day or so of it. But that didn't matter. That first night while they were in Scotland, I believe it is, he actually went and joined the winner's circle for that day, along with the race dignitaries. 
bedecked in a suit before taking the stage and regaling the gathered crowd with his pattern. Another story that emerges from this race is that Seville was supposed to meet up with the other riders to take a ferry across to another leg of the race, but by his own words, he had quote-unquote pulled a bird, meaning he had met a woman who he was more interested in spending time with than going with the other competitors. This is one of the first instances in Seville's life and career where it seems his libido is more important to him than what is set before him that he's supposed to accomplish. At any rate, Seville was able to convince one of the other people involved in the race to drive him over to where the other competitors were so that he could spend time with this young woman. Seville ended up dropping out of the race, but his shenanigans so impressed the organizers that they pulled another car up and had him follow behind the racers in a chase car doing commentary along the way for those watching at home as well as those spectators who had lined up to watch the race. This is really important in Seville's life because this is the first time that the quote-unquote establishment begins to take notice of this odd young man from Leeds with this very unique personality. Because of his performance, Seville ends up getting similar gigs from the sponsors of this race, the Daily Express. In fact, he did commentating on the next few tour of Britain's as well as other high-profile races that the Daily Express sponsored. On top of this... Something else happened during this period of time that is really what brought Seville to the national attention of the British public. Seville was offered a position as the assistant manager at the Mecca La Carano Dance Hall in Leeds. According to Seville, he walked into this local dance hall and just basically presented himself as the new assistant manager, while others stated that they persuaded to Seville to apply for a job, and still others have come forward and said that Seville's reputation for his dance parties had become such that Mecca, which was known for really playing big band music, sought him out in an effort to get the younger crowds to come in. What are the dance halls? The Mecca dance halls were a series of halls that were spread out all over Great Britain that people would go to on a nightly basis and they would dance. You've seen footage of the black and white footage in various films and newsreels of these people dancing sometime, most of the time with a big band playing behind them. Seville, with his dual turntables, was a change of pace in that regard because now the dance halls did not have to pay for the band. They simply had to pay for the DJ. 
Seville was a master of self-promotion. And this really, more than the tour of Britain, his period in the Mecca dance halls is what really showed this. He was able to pull the kids in in the late afternoon and early evenings to come and dance at his record parties. There's also, while this is going on, Seville moves out of his mother's home, claiming first to have lived inside of the dance hall's coat room before moving into an old derelict boat. Some have speculated that he did this in order to get out from underneath his mother's watchful eye because, again, he has all these young people coming to these dances at the dance hall. He really can't be bringing any of these young women that he is invariably meeting back to the house without some form of reproach from his mother. So, and I agree with this assessment. It is very likely that he took these young women so that he could do what he wanted with them. Now, going back to the dance halls, they were very strict regimented places where suit and ties were required. You had to dance a certain way. You had to act a certain way. And the teens were allowed to go there because their parents saw it as a really the only thing for their children to go out and do on a, you know, at night, but also it was a safe environment that was considered quote-unquote morally wholesome. You wouldn't have any of the bumping and grinding that you have today at clubs. That sort of thing would not only have gotten you thrown out of the club, but very likely would have gotten the police called on. When Jimmy Seville came in with his flashy clothes and his whole demeanor, things in the dance hall began to change. While the dances that Seville put on with his record parties were not monstrous successes, which he would later claim they were, the dance hall that he was assistant manager of had been struggling for some time, and the interest that he was generating eventually led the owners of Mecca Limited to take notice of him. And in 1955, they gave Seville a promotion and moved him over to the Ilford Palace to dance which was another one of Mecca's dance halls. This one was located in London's East End. Seville ends up working at this dance hall, which is struggling, and apparently the owners of Mecca suggest to him that he hold one of his record parties, which obviously Seville jumps at the idea because he had been thinking the same thing, but he was worried that following, you know, his train of thought and throwing it out there to the owners of the company might have disastrous results for him as they were very by-the-book individuals. And something like a record party was seen as outside the box and therefore taboo. 
this particular record party was apparently uh, so much of a success that Seville kept on holding them, and he also took to hiring bodyguards to protect himself. You might be wondering why Seville might need bodyguards. There's been a lot of different reasons given for this. My personal belief is that Jimmy Seville hired these individuals as a way to shield himself from public scrutiny as well as deal with any individuals, particularly males, who might have a problem with the attention that Seville was lavishing on their girls for that evening. Seville stated numerous times that young men would be brought down into the basement of the dance hall and beaten while he himself was up in his offices, quote-unquote, entertaining a young bird. What I've read all of this to mean throughout the years is that basically Jimmy Seville saw the Mecca dance hall in London, as well as the one back in Leeds, as his personal hunting ground. Now, however, he's in London, he is the top of the food chain, he can use that persuasive personality of his as well as the power he wields within the dance hall to kind of get the girls there to do anything that he wants. Hey, look, come upstairs with me for a half an hour, I'll let you in free for the rest of the week or whatever it might be have been that he was saying. It's the type of mastications that Seville, I would imagine, employed in order to get these girls to go upstairs with him or wherever it is he wanted to come back to his, his apartment with him in order that he could have his way with them. Some of that could have been Seville spinning yarns in order to make him sail larger than life and more as more of a Lothario than he actually was but there is documentation that is available that proves that Jimmy Seville was in fact taking liberties with young women at the dance hall as well as being a bit heavy-handed with the young man who would freak with the dance hall in fact he did he had a number of scrapes with the law as a result of his activities. However, he was so successful and he turned the business at the Mecca Dance Hall around so stunningly that the owners of the company tended to kind of look the other way with his other operation. And I would suspect that any legal trouble that Seville got into because he was so successful and he was making them so much money, it's more probable than not that the owners may have lent him their lawyers or helped him out with the funds in order to get out of these various scrapes that he was involved in. There were other things coming in Jimmy Seville's life, however, that were going to build upon his power base and make him a little bit more untouchable, I think is the right way to put it. 
In the mid-1950s, Seville, who stated that he had become homesick for Leeds, was able to secure a transfer to Manchester, where he was put in charge of the local dance hall. Seville started hosting talent nights on Tuesdays. One interesting thing that came out of this was the band The Hollies, who started out as a group called The Four Tones. And as the story goes, they were successful in a number of these talent nights Seville held, and eventually went on to international fame because of this. He also went on to open the dance hall during the daylight hours during the week, which was something that was unheard of. He did this during the lunchtime hour, which would see the students at the local schools come in during their lunch period, which apparently got Seville into some hot water with the local educators who thought that he was trying to corrupt the morals of their the youth, which, if you know anything about Jimmy Seville, is more likely than not the truth of the matter. Seville also began to really expand his persona. He started to dress much more flamboyantly, not in the track suits that he would wear in his later years, but just in a much more flamboyant style. He also took to dyeing his completely jet black hair in various shades, everything from purples to silvers to bleach blonde. This is the late 19... mid to late 1950s, early 1960s. Men didn't do these types of things at this time, so it really stood out. He also went out and found an old, beat-up Bentley, which he paid to have fixed up and have Rolls, a Rolls-Royce grill installed on. He drove this around town and would have it parked outside of the dance hall, which attracted more attention to both Jimmy Seville as well as to the dance hall. Obviously, the teenagers see this car thing sitting outside. They think the man who is running the dance hall, this strange individual who is, you know, hitting them with their pattern and dressing so outlandishly, must have some money. Obviously, these young teenage girls are being attracted to this individual who is using his position of authority and this persona that he's presenting to them as an opportunity to take advantage of these girls. And this wasn't something that Seville was hiding by any means whatsoever. He was pretty open even at this point in stating that he was betting all these various young women. You have to keep in mind that back in Great Britain, and even I think to this point, the age of consent in Great Britain was 16. Seville was in his mid to late 20s, early 30s at this point. British society did not look down on a man of that age having sexual relations with a young 
woman. And that is what they thought of these teenagers as. 16, 17-year-old girls were looked at in British society, and in fact, much of society across the Western world, as being young women who were fully capable of making their own decisions. And that's part of what is so tricky about Jimmy Seville and choosing to cover his case because we as a society now are looking back on the things he did 50, 60, 70 years ago with 2020, 2021, 22 eyes and saying that is wrong. If we look at it from the societal point when it happened, there were people that looked at it and said that's not right, but they didn't look at it in the same way and say, no, that's criminal. You're going to see this more and more the further we progress through Jimmy Seville's story. Because it wasn't just him that was doing it. I'm going out on a limb here, but it's factual. A lot of the rock stars that came out of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, even the 80s and 90s were engaged in a lot of the same activities that Seville was engaged in. And by that, I'm not talking about going out and molesting seven and eight-year-olds. I'm talking about taking advantage of 16 and 17, sometimes 15-year-old girls for their own ends. And society turned a blind eye to it because it was somewhat socially acceptable these individuals are famous or quasi-famous, therefore it's okay that they're doing these things. I'm not saying that it's okay that they did these things, but that is the look that society had at that period of time and over the ensuing years of, for lack of a better term, boys will be boys. That's, that's how they looked at it. It was not something that was made a big deal of. So when Seville is doing all this stuff, yeah, he would get into scrapes on occasion with parents or law enforcement, whoever. But at the end of the day, the things he were, was doing that came to light were not considered criminal. That is not to say that there were things that he was doing away from the public glare that weren't criminal. And we are going to be getting into that in the next episode of the Jimmy Seville story when we start talking about a man by the name of Bill Bellamy, who was a local organized crime figure in Manchester. We're going to call it for this week, however. I'd like to thank you for sitting in and listening to me as I expound and pontificate on the one subject on this planet that I think I probably know more about than anything else, and that is Sir Jimmy Seville OBE. Until next time, the Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.